Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by my colleagues, Yulia Zorza with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and Dalibor Hatch, also with AI. On the Eastern Front, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, and about why these matter to the United States. Uh, this is a very special podcast for two reasons. Uh, first of all, my colleagues uh, are in Kyiv, um, and we are joined today by our good friend, uh, Jeff Gedman, publisher of the American Purpose, former director of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and in many ways, the scheming force behind the Eastern Front. Uh, Jeff was instrumental in in getting this project launched. So. Um, a uh, very warm welcome to Jeff. My friends, I'm going to do a lot of listening and questioning, but I'd like to hear, I've been in Kiev a number of days now, or in uh, Ukraine more broadly speaking. Uh, so I'm just going to open up the microphone and ask you to share some of your initial impressions uh, with the audience. Who would like to go first? Jeff, since you're the visiting team, why don't you, uh, why don't you kick it off? So, Giselle, thank you, and for the warm introduction, and I'm delighted to be with you and Julia and Dalibor. Um, here are a few impressions from a relatively short visit to the national capital. Uh, number one, uh, Kiev is in summer, and cafes are open, and couples are kissing, and skateboarders are pretty much everywhere. A remarkable sense of normalcy. And yet it's not normal at all. Uh, we are about five hours from fierce fighting in the East, where there's tremendous damage done by Russian forces. There's rape, there's torture, there's summary executions. That's one point. Second point, Giselle, it's so lovely here, and it's not normal at all. There are two to five air raid silence sirens a day. We've experienced two yesterday and one today. And most of our, our friends here, journalists and parliamentarians and government officials tell us, you know, we ignore it by now. It's not something that we're terribly concerned about. At the same time, two weeks ago, there was a strike in the city on the left bank. Missiles fired from a ship, a Russian ship in the Caspian Sea at a strategic object, a railway station. Six weeks ago, there was a missile fired at a residential apartment building in downtown Kiev. A reporter from my former company, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, was killed. And lo and behold, this morning, we were annoyed too at 7.50 in the morning. There's an air raid siren. We go down to the bomb shelter, false alarm, except later in the day, we learned from a friend, a naval officer, Yes, there was a missile. It was intercepted just before 8 a.m. So there's this normalcy, the move, the war has moved on, and yet not entirely, and this is still a country at war. You wonder, I mean, my gosh, you've only been there several days, uh, but you've had obviously a lot of exposure to Ukrainians of, of many sorts. I'd be interested to hear what how you psychologize them I, I can't think of a better word you know back here 
the uh, as spirits flag, we tend to project our own, uh, you know, frustrations uh, onto Ukrainians. Uh, there was a spate of stories in the last week about um, the toll that the heavy bombardments in the Donbass are exacting on people. And we sort of lurch from one extreme to the other, either taking Ukrainian morale for granted uh, as a, you know, that that is unshakable. Um, but on the other hand, we, we at least the people who are writing, uh, suggest that... Uh, you know, this is unsustainable. You know, that that covers a lot of that phrase covers a lot of sins. What what are your impressions of Ukrainian morale? Maybe I can give this a try. Um, once you're here, you start and start talking to people. You start seeing the gaps and the problems that exist, and that of course they are purposefully hiding and that's the right thing to do to not show vulnerability but i think for me from kind of a morale point of view there's um two striking things that are so far my takeaways the one thing is that i arrived here with something i've expressed on the podcast as well my worst fear that the Biden administration is going to either continue or actually slow down um, the flow of, of deliveries of weapons. And, uh, and then there are several scenarios that, that we've discussed here in terms of what can happen in this case. Um, but I've heard from several people something that is pretty striking, of course, to them, this is core, not peripheral, like it is for us in the United States. But it's so core, and for them, it's so clear now that Russia is engaging in a war of destruction of Ukrainian identity that they tell me the logical thing. There's only one way out of this. We can either die tortured or we can die fighting. So we'd rather die fighting and we will continue fighting with or without our partners. Um, and so that's something that I think in the United States we haven't grasped yet and for sure not in Western Europe. And then the other thing is how quickly, I guess, as that's something that I'm still absorbing, how quickly things have changed here. Um, many here grew up um, with the first native language, Russian, and with an understanding of Russia as their friend. And despite people telling us their instances, we've had now a few who told us about instances of um, direct attempts before 2014 and after 2014 on their life by Russians. Um, they tell us until 2014, despite having been attacked or kidnapped and tortured or beaten, I loved Russia. I never wanted to fight Russians. It's only now, after 2014, that um, I hate them. And so, and I'm going to fight them because I need to survive. And so that's striking to me too, because Ukraine is part of, or used to be part of the Soviet Union and Georgia happened in 2008. 
um, that's their neighbor across the pond, so to speak, across the Black Sea. But yet the reaction has been that can't happen to us um, until it did. And I think that's sort of sinking in in terms of us having tried on the Eastern Front to explain why different countries, different publics react in certain ways and are not as um, involved as we would like them to be, not as committed as we would like them to be. And I think this is part of it. Unless you live through it, um, even once you start living through it, um, it, it takes a while to sink in that um, how bad it is, really. You know, I can imagine that there is kind of a Hatfields and McCoys family feud aspect to this that both makes it brutal and makes the brutality, um, you know, sort of even more intolerable. Uh, Dalibor, what do you, what have been your top line impressions? So I was just going to, I suppose, echo um, the two points that, 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 that Yulia made. But before that, um, I have to say that I have some misgivings about us doing this podcast right after our trips to Bucha and Irpin, where we really saw a certain amount of destruction and, and sort of slight setup. I, I can see your faces and you're all sort of shell-shocked. So, uh, I mean, I appreciate your willingness to go through this. It's, it's just it's either one of those things where, where, where really those sites for, for, for themselves. So, so the one is reminded of Ludwig Wittgenstein's dictum that what we cannot speak about, we can, we have to keep in silence. I mean, I really don't know how to sort of you know describe or communicate these impressions, but I will say that having seen what we've seen today, um, what happens to Ukraine, like you know, is <laughs> is close to my number one issue in you know in 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 contemporary politics as a you know, citizen and voter. And uh, I find it very hard to sort of, you know, op- keep open lines of communication with people who are trying to be too clever by half and devise, you know, solutions to this so-called problem that involve Ukrainian concessions, compromises, or or some sort of accommodation of Russian feelings about, about all this. So, so, so that was just a you know, brief preface to really two, two, two points I want to stress, and, and I think Julia touched on them uh, very well. The, the first one is, is that one gets an overwhelming sense of resilience and determination on the part of the Ukrainians. And it's an interesting experience to be talking to Ukrainians who are sometimes very frank about um, very shortcomings of, of governance within Ukraine, even within the Ukrainian military. They sort of see that not everything is going perfectly. They see that their country is not perfect. Yet they are very clear that they are in this fight, you know, thick or thin, whether the West joins them or not. Uh, and, and and it really, <laughs> Jeff mentioned earlier today, the state motto of New Hampshire, live free or die. I mean, I think that's very much... The, the, the ethos we have encountered among Ukrainians of all political stripes. The second thing I want to say um, is, is that obviously I can claim no expertise on Ukraine. This is my second trip to the country, but the juxtaposition of these two trips, uh, 
I, I, I find really striking. So I came here for the first time in March 2014, right after the Maidan. And, you know, March is a fairly cold month in Ukraine. But, but my impression back then was one of a gray, misgoverned, post-communist, gloomy country. Of the sort you know so well. That was just out of those, you know, 25 years of missed opportunities. Walking around Kiev these days, even though it's wartime, gives you a very different impression. Uh, I'm, I was reminded, first and foremost, of, of Warsaw, where you have this sort of facade of Stalinist architecture with a lot of vibrancy, young people, cafes, restaurants, bustling sort of city life, and and the sense that, that, that this really is very much part of the West. You know, whether we want Ukraine within the West or not, they they are very much part of part of that, that 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 community. I mean, it's not not a perfect country by any stretch of the imagination, and they have a long way ahead of them to sort of reach Western levels of prosperity and and governance and so on. But I think the smart money these days must be on on Ukraine's long term success. And I, I'm saying that regardless of you know what the administration does or doesn't do, I mean, there's no way in the world in which Russians could overwhelm them and successfully turn this country into the part of this broader Ruski Mir or whatever they are trying to build, this sort of Russian empire. I think that really is, I mean, you know, one, one gets almost a sense of historic optimism being here. And and, and that's, a, that's a very old experience for me. Jeff, you're almost as old as me. So I'm wondering whether you can, maybe your longer experience um, and your journalistic experience will allow you to bottle up your emotions or control them to the point where you can talk about the visits that you had to Bucha and Irpin. You know, uh, the German chancellor and the French president, you, you, you all might have overlapped with them going in and them coming out, but they were pretty striking photographs, like, like gather that they also got a similar uh, exposure and the expressions on their faces were of men who had not expected to be so shaken, but were shaken. Jeff, can you, I don't know emotionally how to, to guide you in this, but uh, if you could just tell us narratively uh, what you saw and what you uh, heard and what you felt. Thank you. Um, I heard Dalibor say that the country is far from perfect, has a long way to go, including in the areas of governance. I had a sound glitch, and I didn't know if he was talking about Ukraine or the United States. I think it was. I think it was Ukraine. Um, Giselle, you and I have talked at length uh, about this subject matter and the war against Ukraine, and I know you agree that the stakes here are political and strategic. They're moral and they're humanitarian, and none of these things are easily separable, as one tries to do in many Washington debates, if I may say. And when you go to Bucha and Irpin, and I know we've seen it a thousand times on BBC and on CNN, I know that dozens and dozens and dozens of journalists and, and researchers and scholars have come before us, but to your question, uh, when you see it, uh, it focuses the mind on the fact that this is a, a kind of civilizational struggle. 
I mean, you have to get your head around the fact that Russian forces, the, the words don't do justice, uh, sought to destroy apartment building after apartment building, home after home, civilians, children, elderly with all means at their disposal. Day after day, Bucha fell quickly, European after a month. People evacuated. Those left behind were underground without food, without medicine, without water, without cell phone connection to the rest of the world. It's just nearly incomprehensible that this was conducted as a deliberate operation by a member of the United Nations Security Council. How about that? by a country where we've heard multiple times from multiple sources, there's no security in Europe without Russia. They must be part of the European security architecture. I can only tell you what we saw from my point of view, even though I had expectations from watching and listening and reading and reading, it was shocking. And I want to tell you, we went with two Ukrainian friends. One left early and the other said, I'm staying because my brother lived in Bucha. And while I live 15 miles away in Kiev, I haven't had the nerve to go back and see his house yet. Those are some impressions. Julia? I don't know if I can add anything to that. Um, I guess if I would manage to take the nausea, <laughs> it would help. But um, to me, the lesson learned for our listeners um, if we can um, give any advice to that is I know that many and I've seen it in Romania where I was for for a week or so and uh, in the region and across the Atlantic have fear and we're driven by fear in our policy to avoid World War Three and to not escalate. But I think once you go to Bucha or to Irpin, you get rid of that fear. You just see anger. Delavore? I think that's I think that's that, that's right. We we spoke earlier with a journalist covering um Russian and actually Ukrainian human rights violations. So so they, they are sort of taking a as a an as objective a perspective as as, as as possible, trying to document evidence of you know transgressions against human rights and war crimes on both sides. Obviously there is no comparison about the sort of order of magnitude. Moreover, her point was that in her own work, there has been overwhelming evidence that um, when it comes to Russian human rights violations and war crimes, those are not isolated acts of you know misbehaving commanders or soldiers or lack of discipline. That there is a clear pattern which is coming from up the military hierarchy. The same patterns of abductions, torture, kidnappings has been a deliberate effort on the Russian side to build essentially a pool of prisoners that could then be exchanged for uh, for Ukrainian uh, for, for Russian prisoners of war in Ukraine. Uh, so you know, civilians get abducted; they would be then dressed in Ukrainian uniforms. They would be accused of all kinds of fictitious crimes, and then used as a sort of leverage to, to, to get the Russians out of Ukraine. I mean, this is something that is unthinkable in a, in a sort of, you know, normal, conventional sort of, sort of war, yet 
it's been happening on a on a on a large scale here. Not to speak about, I mean, the, you know, the impact of the Russian occupation of Crimea on the on the local say Tatar population. We had the longer discussion about that over dinner last night with with with, with Tatar activists and people who are involved in the Ukrainian government trying to trying to help. Uh, I mean, this really is a civilizational struggle, and it's one that. Uh, I don't think can be reduced to the person and malevolence of Vladimir Putin. I mean, it really goes much deeper into Russian psyche, into the sense that Russia is entitled to an empire, that Russia uh, should be allowed to expand uh, until it, I suppose, reaches the, the sphere of influence of some other greater power. And that's a, that's a worldview that's just antithetical to you know what, what for the united states and and its allies have been building in europe and beyond as 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 a sort of international political political order and and it just again i i see no greater imperative in politics today in 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 the west throughout countries you know from the united states to slovakia than to stand up to this and to make sure that this is not allowed to flourish and 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 and, and really have no greater task than to you know push Russia back in, in, into its borders and, and, and just put it in its place. There, there, there can be no regard for, you know, the feelings of, of those who govern this, 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 this uh, supposed Russian empire. I think, I think that, that really is I mean, very much the driving force behind, you know, our podcast, dare I say, and, 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 and sh- should remain so in the months ahead. My friends, I hear you and see you struggling to make sense of the experience. It must be um, just an overwhelming thing. Let me go back, though, one more time and start with you, Dalmore, and go the other way. Just describe one thing that in, that you experience that in in Bucha or Irpin or even in, in Kiev that encapsulates. Look for me. Um, I suppose the biggest shock of of European was was like you know being being driven into a sort of suburb with apartment buildings that looked like something that could be like at the outskirts of my hometown of Bratislava, where growing up in in the nineteen nineties, like armed conflict was unthinkable and and just seeing the scale of the destruction brought upon civilians and and you, you know you see old ladies which might be living in shelters but trying to i guess like get stuff from their old apartments people who say that they come back to water their plants although they can't really live in their in their in their apartment buildings and it's just you know having been brought up in Slovakia, a country that's close culturally and 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 and, and civilizationally, if you if you, if 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 you will, uh, it 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 is hard not to take all this very personally. I mean, this is a war that is not being fought by Ukrainians for Ukrainians. This is a this is this is a war that is being fought by Ukrainians in defense of, you know, like everything we hold dear in 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 you know Central and Eastern Europe and in the West. Julia? I think for me, it's something that Jeff was also alluding to, this duality that I've seen. on And all of this duality very much, for me, reminds me here, we've 
talked about it briefly on this podcast here and there, but it does being in Kiev and in the West, it does remind me a little bit of Israel. And I guess, um, I guess that's our best hope for Ukraine to try to help them become more like Israel with the pluses and minuses and specificities that they have. Um, they don't have unofficially the ultimate defense and will probably not have it anytime soon. Um, but on the other side, they have neighbors um, that can help. And I think there is reliance on that because at least some of these neighbors, I hope more, um, see um, this war as existential as they do. Um, but but when you are here, I think the duality is expressed to me on one side in everyday conversations, this feeling of, yes, there's airstrikes, but we must live on. And um, I've been struck by how well the Ukrainian sense of humor is preserved um, the most difficult conversations that we've had here, people actually managed to make us, make me laugh about the Russian atrocities, if that's even possible. Assassination attempts against them. And assassination attempts against them. And, um, and it's all a good sense of humor. It works. So that's the... It sounds like a graveyard sense of humor. Uh, it's actually that kind of um, dry Eastern European... Eastern European. <laughs> yeah. We've been through this for hundreds of years. We're, we're just getting used to it. Um, so that's on one side that actually you can see through the sense of humor, the will to fight and to live on. Um, and to restore in one way or another the sense of normalcy. And by the way, you see it in Irpin and Bucha and Ostomel and Borodyanka and all these places too, the, the quickness with which they're rebuilding. Um, and that reminds me of Israel too. And the other side of this duality is something that was pointed out to us and we've heard it from others being here as us journalists, researchers, that in almost every conversation here regionally in Kyiv, for instance, um, the the discussion comes up of a second battle of Kyiv and um, how much they have to prepare. And you see it on the streets that they're reinforcing their fortresses um, and, and their barriers um, because there are tens of thousands of troops just 70 kilometers, what is that, 30, 40 miles um, away from, um, from the city. And, you know, Putin is irrational and Russia is irrational, so it might happen again, maybe this year, maybe next. But they seem to be to be accommodating to that and living with it. And, and that's, that's the interesting, I guess that's encapsulating right now the Ukrainian spirit on one side, looking at the past with a sense of humor and um, on the other side, looking into the future with a sense of worry and having to prepare for what for them is probably a very, very long battle. And yeah. then over to Jeff. So I'll, I'll echo a number of those things, Giselle. When we were in Irpin today, um, we were looking at a, a utterly destroyed, gutted apartment building, and then come coming down the stairs comes a fellow who walks out the front door with jugs going to get water. And he uh, is friendly enough to ask us 
whether he can be helpful. And we tell him we have questions. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to water my plants <laughs> upstairs in this utterly destroyed building. And with, with some charm and humor, he tells us, what else can you do? Because plants have to be watered. Um, life does go on, and it's remarkable poise and 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 real toughness um, coming to my mind today were, were issues of fragility and serendipity and of course bravery because you saw in the outskirts the suburbs of Kiev what was ready to be visited on Kiev in some fashion it, it's very sobering and then to what Yoya said the fortifications around the city are not just there they're being replenished or Refortified, as parliamentarian yesterday from Odessa said to us, well, we don't expect another attack on Kiev now, but Putin thinks in years, not in months, not in quarters. And the last thing I would say, apropos Israel, some years ago I was in Tel Aviv during one of the wars with Lebanon. At a taxi driver, we were both looking at these military helicopters flying overhead. And he shrugged his shoulders and he said, well, we fight in the north so that we can have dinner and go to the beach in the south. Uh, let's not have that be the future of Ukraine. Ukraine does not deserve a country where they fight like hell in the east so that they can have relative stability in the western part of the country. And I think uh, Dalibor and Yoya will agree. We've heard again and again and again and again with the necessary military assistance and capabilities, they will fight for their country, they will win for their country, and they are determined to drive the invaders and occupiers out of their country, not through false peace and pragmatism and partition, but out of the country. I think that's an important call. Well, let's hope that the Ukrainians don't have to follow the Israeli example in being hectored by Western outsiders who encourage them to trade land for peace, especially when there's not much peace to be had. Before we sign off, is there something that is a, on one of your minds that you would like to share? There's no need to, other than to say Slava Ukraini. <laughs> Slava Ukraini. Yeah. And I guess... I guess it's necessary, even in this episode, that we say it again to find words to repeat what Jeff is saying. Yes, they will fight on without partners, um, but I think it's up to us to support this in a way or another because there's only so much that anybody can take, and and I think it's it does come down, you know, I always have this military or security lens. Um, and so I ask these questions and it just comes down to long range. We need long range to be able to destroy the supply lines, to destroy the ammunition depots, because that's the only way that they can stop hundreds of people being soldiers, being killed um, every day um, on the front lines. And so it really, um, it's it's hard and it's painful to see that we're in a situation where 
you, Giselle, and us and, and all of our friends that have been on this podcast for, for many episodes, um, we realized that if we if if it the will was there, then this war with United States and its allies' support could be ended in a matter of weeks. That hundreds of people don't need to die every day. And it's it's really hard to see that it's just a matter of policy being indecisive, being driven by fear instead of strategy, um, and that every day that we drag this on, it costs us more. It costs us more now in lives and in in material and in finance and weapons, but it also costs us more in the long run in terms of rebuilding and and reinforcing. Um, and so I guess that's, um, that's an important takeaway that we should have from this episode and again and again. Well, I'm very grateful to, to all of you. I'm glad that I don't have to go. Uh, honestly, uh, my past career has shown me the evil that lurks in the human heart and the brutality that, uh, that lives there as well. So thank you so much for, for bearing witness. Uh, and I look forward to our future conversations during your trip. And I hope you all come home entirely safely. Thank you. So from me, Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Joja and Daliburu Hodge. Thank you so much for listening to the Eastern Front. I should also say very great thanks to uh, our friend Jeff Gedman for, for joining us and helping us so much along the way so far. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, aei.org, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, all one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you very much, and goodbye until next time.